Well, as one gentleman said to me one day, you play the game because you love it, then somebody turns up and tries to teach you the game and takes all the fun away from it. And some of the kids in that, that were standing in front of you didn't need any, to know anything about rugby. You were mm -hmm. teaching them about life. Teenagers and young adults that we're coaching at the moment, they're educated differently. And you need to understand that as a coach. And the key learning around that, and it's probably driven me ever since, is the environment. Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. I'm your host Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international player, now mindset and performance coach. I help players and teams all over the world overcome setbacks, play in the zone and achieve higher levels. On this podcast, I chat with people at the top level about their journey so that you can get their insights and hear what worked for them. You probably agree that you need to be strong mentally as well as physically, but most players don't know how to work on their mindset. My new book, The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player, is like a gym program, but for your mental strength. In it, you'll learn how to instantly move on when you make mistakes in games, how to feel excited and confident on the field, and how to play in the zone. And it's available now on Amazon. Please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening, and be sure to send it on to some friends. Cheers. Hey, hope you're keeping well. Today in the podcast, I have Brent Fru, who has coached the Crusaders in the past, has been the Brazilian national team coach, was an audio for Canterbury Rugby for 12 years, and is now the director of rugby at Burnside Rugby Club, which is a premier Div 1 club in Christchurch. In the podcast, we chat all things coaching. I have just edited the podcast myself, so listen back to it for a second time. I've made pages and pages of notes. I could start going through all the different topics, but I'll save you that and I will just let you hear the chat. A quick background on how I met Brent or Fruby as he's known. So as I said to you on the podcast last week, I've moved to Christchurch, New Zealand, and I did so after having a chat with Crusaders manager Shane Fletcher and Fletch said that when I'm coming to Christchurch that a great guy to get in touch with will be Fruby and he's a very good coach educator so I did just that and I've gotten involved with Burnside for this season coming up we are in pre-season at the moment in my role I've been installing the attack over the last few weeks and yeah just loving it at the club all the other coaches are bang on the lads are legends and looking forward to this season one other quick thing we had this chat in the clubhouse in Burnside and the clubhouse was meant to be free but then some guys came to fix something in the bar so towards the end of the chat you will hear a little bit of background noise it's not that bad but just imagine that you're sitting there with us you're sitting there in the clubhouse and look some lads have just come to do a little bit of work on the shutter in the bar. So hope you enjoy the chat. As always, you can connect with me on social media at Offfield Rugby. And my LinkedIn is Brian Moylet. Cheers. So, yeah, just pretty keen to chat about coaching and we'll see where the chat uh, takes to. So maybe chat with Ruby about 
earlier on in your coaching days or how you got started with coaching then we'll go on to like Canterbury Crusaders to get involved with that and then what we're up to here with Burnside uh, there's a really good reason why I've never played the sport professionally too short too round and just not good enough so that I was a soldier for 21 years and just played rugby in the army to be fair and then um one of the guys who was an ex-Canterbury player, a guy Richie Ewans, played number eight for Canterbury, was also a soldier, and he was coaching a team out at Burnham and asked me if I'd help him out as a manager. I said, yeah, no problems. Went down there and ended up falling into the coaching gig. Um, so my initial coaching was all done as a soldier out at Burnham in the Ellesmere competition. Um, so, and I just seem to keep stumbling into it every year. Um, on my journey as a coach, we won, we had a Colts team out at Burnham, which is one of those flukes of nature when you get a group together who's a pretty good rugby team a very good rugby team. We put them in the Metro competition. They won the bloody thing. And the commanding officer of the battalion, Ian Healy at the time, had said, you're, you're coming to Australia on exercise. You're on the last plane. It leaves at 6 o'clock in the morning after your final. If you don't win the final, have a bloody good excuse or don't bother coming over. Um, we won it, fortunately. So we were on the plane the next day, next morning, and we flew to Australia on exercise. Uh, so that sort of hooked me a little bit more into it. I then helped coach the seniors team out at Burnham. We played in the Ellesmere competition, and we happened to win that as well. And the reason I tell you that story is, at that stage, I thought I could coach. In hindsight, I was a copy and paste and manager. So the actual understanding of the coaching process come quite a bit later, even though I was called a coach. I really didn't understand the art of coaching. But I was hooked by then. I just couldn't play anymore. So it was when I started connected to a sport that I really enjoyed and loved. And with a group of people that you tried to influence and get them to be at their best when their best was needed. So that was interesting. Um, probably became what I would call a certificate collector at that stage. Did every course known to man and woman, whether it was a rugby course or a general sports coaching course. Um, acquired knowledge but not the understanding or the skill to put it in place at that stage um, and the boys would say to me great session Fruby and it was probably because I kept them busy and it had a bit of variety in it but I'm not sure I was teaching them anything and for me that was just the start of the journey I was on and from there 
I left the army and went overseas for two years. Prior to that, I'd done a lot of volunteer work for Canterbury Rugby as assisting coaching courses and practical training days and things like that. So I'd built up a network of people inside Canterbury Rugby. In those days, Canterbury Rugby didn't have anybody ever leave because they all loved it and the environment was great. And I was in Baghdad um, going into northern Iraq. I was, at the time, I'd got out of the army and I was working for a civilian demining company and I'd, I'd been home on leave and I'd seen a position with Canterbury Rugby advertised as a rugby development officer and I applied for it. Then thought nothing of it, went back into Iraq. We'd fly into Amman, then get a vehicle into Baghdad and then drive up into northern Kurdistan. And I got a phone call on an email saying, we'd like to interview you. So I interviewed out of, I think I was down in Baghdad when the interview was on. I think the, the phone cut out twice, so I was frantically ringing back. And I said to them, if I'm successful with the job, I need a bit of time just to finish off my contract here. And a key question that it came down to was, in reflection, do you want to be a professional coach? And the answer I gave was no, I just love the game. I think that was probably what they were looking for, where a lot of other people were interviewing in all likelihood to get as a stepping stone to being a professional coach, which coaching at that stage didn't want to, didn't worry me at all. I just wanted a lifestyle job. So I was successful in getting that and spent the next 12 years working for Canterbury Rugby as an RDO. So that's the initial journey into coaching, I suspect. Yeah, nice one. It's funny when you're saying about the guys saying great session through because you kept them busy and run around. That's one thing, the first things that I found when I was coaching, it was like, oh, the guys are happy and having fun when they're just running around all the time and kept busy. You know, like I coached when I was a very young coach and I was like, just keep doing that. Yeah. Well, as one gentleman said to me one day, you play the game because you love it, then somebody turns up and tries to teach you the game and takes all the fun away from it. You've got to understand how to blend the two. You can still teach people about themselves and the game while having fun and hard work working people hard can be fun maybe not at that Big point time. in time but you know <clears throat> people get to share that hard work amongst themselves it builds connection which can be enjoyable yeah 100 percent, 100 percent and chat to me then about the RDO in Canterbury Rugby. So is that like going around to different schools, clubs, or what was that role like? Um, and when I first joined Canterbury Rugby, 
as a rugby development officer, you worked in clubs and schools. And we had um, an area of the province that we were responsible for. And I had, um, at that stage, there was four or five of us. And we all had a different area and we had two sort of senior RDOs. And we understudied one of them and we're pretty much left to get on to our own devices. Um, you went into the primary and intermediate schools and it was just visibility, um, engaging the kids. Um, just had to make sure you weren't there as a time filler for the teacher made sure that the teacher was there in support of you, um, things like that. In fact, interesting story, I think it was my third day of work, I ended up going to an intermediate school and running a session, it was the last session on a Friday, and I hadn't long been home from northern Iraq, maybe 10 days, and uh, they had the sports class the sports class was code word for all the kids that nobody else wanted. Had a relieving teacher. And um, anyway, long story short, got the class up and running. At that stage, I was doing skills and drills. And one of the kids went, you're a big fat so-and-so. I don't want to be here. My first instinct was, what did you say? And he repeated it. So... I almost grabbed him by the throat and checked myself yeah. and realised, yeah, you can't be too impulsive here, Fruby. So I separated the kid, made sure nobody could hear, it, hear me, had a quiet word in his ear that you've got two choices, fly over the fence or sit down here and I completely get you don't want to be involved, you don't have to be involved, just sit here. Turned, had 15 to 18 kids looking at me and thought, hmm, I've really got a lot to learn about this. Just went straight into a game, split them up, played a game, bit of banter with them. The kid that had made the comment decided that he wanted to be back involved, and I went, ah, oh, mate, you made a choice, you stay over there. And the relieving teacher came and took care of him. We went for about 20 minutes. Bell went, and they all ran off. The reason I tell that story is because it highlighted what I, how much I didn't know. But it also highlighted that you had to understand who and what was standing in front of you and be a bit of a salesman, give them a lot of what they wanted a little bit of what they needed and change it around over time. And some of the kids in that, that were standing in front of you didn't need any, to know anything about rugby. You were mm -hmm. teaching them about life, about behaviour, um, those sorts of things. And the other thing I learned was I probably got my best teaching as a rugby coach from good intermediate school teachers. And I say that because 
if you go and watch an intermediate school teacher in a, in a classroom, first thing you'll notice is the environment. There's colours, there's their works up. There's lots of stuff around there that indicates what they've done and where they're at. Um, so emblems and things like that. And then I, you don't have to know anything about what the teacher's teaching because I'd go in there and watch their body language, how they could control a class of 28 boys and girls with the blink of an eye, the nod of a head, a gesture. They had language that the kids knew exactly what they had to do because of that short phrase. Things like, do you think that's a good idea, Brian? They weren't telling the kid what to do, but they were forcing him to make a decision. The value of questioning versus instruction. And we tend, how that related to rugby was we tend as coaches to work people from the neck down. We're in actual fact, we should be really working them from the neck up because the body will warm itself up and get going, but you, you need people to understand the game. So I learned a lot just watching good teachers. And if you look around, there tends to be a proportion of good coaches who've got a teaching background or a policeman background because they deal with people. So if that was where that story's at, it was just an interesting first week at work. Yeah, it's so funny. I had a very similar experience. So I coached when I was like 20, helped out like the underage teams in my club in Dublin. And then when I was 23, moved to the States as a player coach for a university side. And there were guys that were older than me and five, six of those guys have gone on to be capped eagles. Like it was a good environment. And I remember I was coaching and very new to it. And a similar thing happened to me. A, a guy just goes, fuck you, or something like this, or, or just said something. He was the type of guy who would say to his teammates, just, you know, just a, that kind of guy. And then I heard him say it towards me. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I was like, yeah, on the spot. And in that moment, you have to do something. You know what I mean? And I sent him off the field. I just go, hey, Corey, just go, just leave the field. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. And I was just like, just leave the field. But it was, um, that was like you're saying, I was thinking X's nose all the time because I was young and mm. that's what I was, you know, implementing or helping people understand X's nose. But then that happened. I was like, oh. And then after he was like apologizing and everything, I was like, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, that was, it's interesting because yeah, it's, you're managing people. And I think that's something that a lot of coaches challenges, like underage coaches, you're dealing with people growing up and, you know, some people, hotheads, as they say. I probably don't, I'm not comfortable with the term role model because I think people should have a whole lot of role models if I, was, if I had to use that term. What I'm probably more comfortable with is significant other people in your life who can teach you things. And I think that's the role of a sports coach. I will foster your love for the sport, but subconsciously I'm going to teach you a whole lot of lessons about life, about enjoying life, about yourself, because the more people can understand themselves, the better they can 
control their emotions and live in the moment and respond appropriately to external things that happen around them. Uh, that's not easy. It takes time as a coach. Um, when I, I started work for Canterbury Rugby as an RDO in, would have been January 2002 or 2003, I can't remember. But I got into the job and thought, I've arrived. Subconsciously, I was thinking, I've arrived. They've employed me. I must know something about the game. I probably took me a month to figure out, a couple of months to figure out that I didn't know diddly squat. I was still on a learning journey, which was fine. And I sort of knew I'd nailed it a little bit. I'd go to run a coaching course and I'd take my comforter, as I'd call it, which was a whiteboard and a marking pen, mm. and I'd write up on the whiteboard what I was going to teach that audience that night. I hadn't twigged to the fact that that might not be what they needed to know, but it's what I was comfortable with because I was, I was in control. It was all about me. And then you eventually roll into it, probably two years later, you just go and put a whiteboard up, introduce yourself, hand out some marker pens and go right up on there what you want to get out of the night. And I say that there's something in this for you. And that's just admitting vulnerability. You don't have to know everything. In fact, the skill was in facilitating the room because somebody else in that room might have experienced that and they might have been able to give you an answer. So that was that. Another story. Um, my life's full of stories. A gentleman called, he's not with us any longer, Dears Hanson, Steve Hanson's father. Now Dears was an incredible individual. He had the had a funny, funny sense of humour and he could tell a story and make you laugh. But when I first got in as an RDO, people had said, oh, Des Hansen, this, Des Hansen, that. And at the time, the all-black coaches were using Des to give them some feedback, opposition analysis, things like that. And he coached... He originally coached in Dunedin and then they shifted up to Christchurch and he coached some senior rugby. And if you go back and look at, I think it was Marist, there was a whole generation of coaches came out of that senior team he coached. One, he taught them a love of the game. He taught them about game, the game and they were able to go off and coach in their own right. Um... Anyway, one day I was working and I said to my colleague, who had also been employed as an RDO at the same time as I had, let's go go to Des Hansen house, have a chat with him. So we went there, caught up for two hours talking, him and his wife. His wife was a fantastic baker. So we had a cup of coffee and some lovely chocolate chip biscuits. I remember that. And we left and was driving home with 
my colleague, and he happened to say, well, I don't know what they all see in deers. I didn't get anything out of that. I said, well, they all talk about them. Yeah, I'll have to think about it. So went home that night, thought about it, went back to work the next day and said, look, let's go back and see deers a second time. And my colleague went, look, I'm too busy, you go back. So long story short, I went back, knocked on the door, and I had a packet of biscuits. Dez opened the door and went, I thought you would be the one that who would come back, and we don't eat that shit here. We'll have my wife's baking. And he took us in, sat down, and I probably spent two and a half hours with him. And at the end of it, he said, what have you learnt, Fruby? And I said, it's all about people. He said, exactly. The sport and the ball's just a means to working with people. And he's right. It's all about people. Sport is about people, about relationships, about understanding yourself, about understanding them. And that's the artistry of coaching. And I always think you've got the science of whatever sport you're in, the X's and the O's, and then you've got the artistry. And the real good coaches employ people who understand X's and O's better than them in all likelihood, but they are masters of the artistry of interpersonal relationships, individually and collectively. I think that's an acquired skill over time, and some people are very good at it. Mm. Yeah, 100%, that's class. And, you know, I think that sometimes with just chatting to different coaches of underage, they get, I get a feel that they get a bit um, caught up and anxious around the X's and O's because they're kind of, you know, a bit of self-doubt or they're like, do I know the latest thing or the latest trend? And they're kind of very focused on that. And because they want to prov- do the best for the players, they think that that's what it's all about. But like you say, yeah, the the best coaches are the good ones at that. So I'm thinking under 14, 16, 18. I'm just thinking of that. Mm-hmm. And it's um, guys who, yeah, create a fun environment where the players want to go to. And, yeah, it's enjoyable. And it doesn't matter if you're, a couple, you know, two or three years behind. You don't have the newest drill or the newest game or the newest. You don't need to be worried about that. If you're picking up a new team around the teenagers good question to put to them is what do you love about the game what do you enjoy about the game and that's the first part give them what they want and that gives you an insight into them and make it game based so many sided games things like that and do your coaching and teaching inside that Mm. Um, don't overcomplicate it the art of questionings a, a good skill and that's a whole learning in its own how to, how to utilise questioning in, in your, your coaching um, all sorts of things like that um, I do think in some cases we get too tied up in X's and O's and the reason I say that is because 
We've lost the ability, in my opinion, to think independently about the game. I think if we see something happening at the top end of the game, we tend to copy it and think, oh, well, they're doing it, let's do it. But actual fact, we need to be independent thinkers and say, well, what's my philosophy around the game? How do I want to play it? Boys, how do you want to play the game? You tell me how you want to play the game. And let's figure out something together. Because it gives them ownership in the game. It gives them accountability. But you can go on the journey together. And it may not work. But you've got a great problem to try and solve. So, yeah, I... I I would love people to think more laterally about how they want to play the game and include their players in that discussion. Yeah, and it's a lot easier for you as a coach when you do that, when you give them accountability, when when they think about it in the way, like you say, how do you want to play the game? And they say, I want to play the game this way. Then there's a little bit of an onus on them Versus if it's all uh, uh, you telling all the time, mm. the players are like, I'll just wait to be told and do what I'm told. Versus when you give them accountability or ownership, then they will solve some problems for you. They'll think about how do we work this out? How does this happen? And that's, you know, they talk a lot of these days more so about player led, but you know, I don't think there is as much of that as is talked about. But I love what you're saying there about like how do you want to play the game and and those ki- having those kind of ideas and questions to teams because, like you said at the start, the coach you don't need to know it all and you know you can. It's all of you together. It's collaborative. If you have thirty players and you know two coaches, it's thirty-two brains. It's not two. At the end of the day, players own the grass. They're playing the game. As a coach, you can you get a little bit of time at half time to try and influence something. Hmm. You can put your reserves on to try and change something. But if you accept that your ability to influence is somewhat limited and that to use a Robbie Dean's acronym players own the grass well your mouths will make them give some give them some responsibility for owning the game which is replicated in your trainings so you know what do you enjoy about the game and how do you want to play the game and they might have three good ideas and two unrealistic ideas well you can just talk your way through that and the realities of it and just give them that ownership of it I think that's important Um, and I think there's a generation of players coming through like I, I, I always go back to the education system when I went to school I'm 61 when I went to school People told me how to 
what I had to learn, I learned it. I did an exam. Failed most of them, but I did the exam anyway. My daughter went to school and my son. My daughter's 28. And she said, she came home one day and I said, what's for homework? She goes, oh, I've got to do a project. What's your project on? Oh, it can be anything. What do you mean anything? Well, I've just got to do a project. So tell me some more. Well, I've got to do a project on, and I've just got to keep these three questions in the back of my mind, and whatever I pick, I've got to answer those questions. Took me a while to get my head around that. It was like free choice. Mm. Subsequently, they call that guided discovery, where they're putting that child in charge of their learning. And they take ownership, and there was she had, Maddie had to make a poster to a written journal, and had to do a whole lot of things that she explained to me over time. So, the point I'm making the kids that teenagers and young adults that we're coaching at the moment they're educated differently, and you need to understand that as a coach. Because the telling them what to do doesn't work anymore. You you can have the f final arbitrary decision um, and make sure we're all aligned, check for understanding and we're all aligned and we'll go. But ramming it down their throat, telling them how to do it, probably not as effective as it was 30 years ago. And the modern coach... You've got to be mindful of that because the kids today want to have input. They want to be asked. You don't have to take their decision, but they want to know that you've listened, actively listened to them and engaged with them. Um, you're not just your way or the highway. And that can be a challenge for a lot of older coaches that probably aren't as aware of how these young kids are coming through. And I, I think it's great. Mm. It's great for coaches because you've got to in, in, increase your skill set. It's great for connection between the young adults and coaches. I think there's a lot of positives in it. And... As we get more females in the game, I think there's opportunities for growth there because males tend to be inhibited in my... because we're, we've always done it some way. This is how the game is. So the, sort of the, like the shackles are on where the young female, they're not shackled by anything. They... They don't bring any inhibitions because they're open to anything. And they're as Wayne um, Smith said, men need to play well to feel valued. Women need to be valued in order to play well. Hmm. So with women, you're dealing with the person to get the best out of the game. 
with the men, you're preparing, you've got to prep them up for success to get the self-esteem, if that makes sense. And that's two quite different approaches. Yeah, 100%. That's so interesting. And I, about three years ago, started coaching women for the first time and was doing it up until four months ago or whatever. And the biggest learning I had, this is actually slightly different in that uh, within a coaching group, there was a woman, myself, and a man, three of us. And just the way she looked, and she played international rugby, you know, she was knowledgeable in the game. The way she looked at things was how would it make them feel? You know what I mean? And thinking from that lens. And it was, I remember, you know, three years ago or whatever, and I saw it first, I was just like, like I was saying, X's nose, X's nose, pick her, drop her, da da da, you know, just very thinking that way. And then, yeah, she just kind of put in one or two questions or just, and I just looked at her and just kind of started seeing that she wasn't looking at things from the same angle I was. And that re ever since then, yeah, I was kind of, I kind of always think of, and that's what they say then as well about coaching the person, not the player, or, you know, like that kind of angle at it as well. And seeing players as people, you know, and yeah, that was the first time I saw that. And, uh, I think that's something, you know, you can have different nationalities, like diff different ways of thinking, you know, men and women are different, different nationalities are different, but I think that's so cool within a coaching group to have people who are seeing things all from different angles, you know? Yeah, there's a couple of points you made there. One's a coaching group. I think it's good to have diversity in a coaching group, that you view the same thing differently because eventually it's going to force you to have a discussion. Hmm. And if you also if all all the members of the coaching and management group see the world the same way, you're going to miss the same thing. We if you've got the different perspectives, experiences and understanding, hopefully you'll have a wider scope of understanding. So I think that's good diversity within your coaching group. Whether it's male or female, neither here nor there. The other thing is, because males, to use my term, tend to be programmed and set in their ways, you can ask a question, but eventually they want told what to do, go mm. and, do and they'll go and do it for you. Um, with the females the first thing they'll do is ask why are we doing that? And then they'll want to discuss it amongst themselves. And that can be during the training, etc. And then they'll formulate an opinion about it. So the artistry is in allowing that process to take place at the right time and in the right space in the context of your coaching and then convincing them, and you may have to make an arbitrary decision, for now, ladies, this is what we're doing. For this reason, your role is so that we can achieve this. And you, you go. But the, it's, it's two different coaching styles and strategies, but... 
yeah, can be a challenge. Yeah, 100%. It's so different. And I absolutely loved it, doing both. Like, I loved doing coaching everyone, but um, I loved that part of it because I was, as I was chatting to you last week, I was the player who was always like, why are we doing this? Why this way? Because I was curious, because I loved the game. Like, I've been watching it since as long as I can remember. Dad always had it on in the house. And I just loved the game. And uh, as I was telling you, a lot of, a few coaches I had grown up saw that questioning as um, that I was chal- like challenging them in a, a wrong way or I don't know that and they would shut up and just get on with it and and stop being a troublemaker essentially but uh, then you know the, some a fair few coaches were loved it but that's what I loved with coaching the women is that they would ask questions and I could then go deeper on it you know and explain it further and have great conversations around it and it's funny then I was coaching an under 18 boys team right at the end of the season and I started talking for about 12 to 15 seconds and heads started going looking into the distance they were kind of you know they just wanted to go and it reminded me I'm like ah yeah the boys just want to just give get two or three instructions just go just play just play they don't want to hear me talking there's two two points there. One, to use the down a rabbit hole analogy of you don't know where you're going to go and how deep's too deep with females. You could end up spending a whole lot of time talking about it where yeah. you actually haven't even mastered the basics yet. Yeah. So you've got to monitor that because yeah. otherwise there'll be all knowledge and no ability where the men can have ability but they don't understand the reason why which comes back to that if you can coach a principle and they understand that principle and apply it to any given situation that's that eureka moment Uh, but anyway well our conversation's gone off on a tangent I'll I'll bring it back into the RDO no uh, one quick one on that so um no, it's just interesting that uh, with that, like like you were saying about too much depth, you know, and you're right, there is too much depth at times you got to do it. And what I found was our fullback, she was v- so knowledgeable, you know, she was just very, very knowledgeable of the game. And she was the one, of course, who who kept, you know, after training, like, and what, what about this, you know, back three and what about if here, here, here. And I loved it. And it got to a point, I just said, Callie, I trust you. You just make the decision out there. You organize the wingers. You do it. And you, you're you very knowledgeable in the game. And I'll back you 100%. And that was a challenge with the group as a whole in that just play what you see. Just do whatever you feel. Go for it. You know what I mean? They kept wanting to know more and more and more. And like you say, it got to a point where it was just like, hey, don't you know? Just do what you feel. Don't you don't need to keep coming back to me as a coach or us as coaches to keep no more. You know what I mean? Mm. That play, what you see, is an interesting comment to me because what do they see? I know what you mean, and but this was to the way I said that to her was so that for her to know that I trusted her to make a decision and her not be thinking what should I be doing here what yeah. should I be doing here so that and that's great that, that's 
that's living your values, showing you care about them and trust them and um, just having belief in them, which is massive from a coaching's perspective. But the play what you see, I sort of look at people and, and it's more for reviewing. Explain to me what you saw that made you make that decision which is a great conversation to have with players. Because you're not passing judgment. Whatever happened is the judgment. Did it work? It's trying to get them to reflect and understand their own thought processes. Because in the heat of the battle, those thought processes have to be instinctive. Because if a player's got to think about something, they're probably too late. Mm. So that subconscious embeddingment and, and learning is really important. And the higher you go up the food chain towards the elite level, that thinking, you just have to be instinctive. So that conversation and questioning around what made you make that decision what did you see? What cue recognition did you have that allowed you to do that? And if it worked, that's brilliant. They'll embed that cue recognition or that even deeper. And if it didn't work, the question is, well, what other options did you have? Because the difference between... Me and Daniel Carter, if we're standing on the rugby field side by side, we're, we're actually seeing the same thing. But I'm paying attention to about a hundred different things. He's paying attention to two or three because of his experience, the situations he's been in before. So he, he just processes that instinctively. Where I... By the time I've processed it, the moment's passed. So that the artistry of coaching, that decision making, and having that conversation with a player takes a little bit of time, but it's really important. And trying to word questions that don't start with the word why because as soon as you use the word why, it's almost like the player's got to justify it. So, you know, what did you see versus why did you do that? Mm. So anyway, a whole another rabbit warren mm. of the art of coaching around decision-making. Yeah, and, you know, on the questioning thing, right? So, like, when I, once again, seven, eight years ago when I started coaching a lot I heard about asking questions and I, that was more of a, a mental thing so it's like I'm in my head thinking what question would be good to ask or I should ask more questions when I'm coaching therefore I'm thinking about asking questions but something that I found very helpful in my coaching has been doing this podcast so when I started out 
it was I looked up like what makes a good interviewer and Oprah, Joe Rogan, all these people or whatever, whatever. And it said that they're curious. So when I started out the podcast, once again, I had loads of questions written out. Like if I was sitting here with you now, I'd have had a page of questions and you know, I'd ask you a question, you'd answer something, I'd ask you another question, I'd ask you another question, and I'd be thinking about questions to ask. Versus, you know, over this last two years or whatever, I've realized that it's far more better to be curious. And when you are curious and you truly want to know, then naturally you're going to ask questions. And whereas what I found is when I was a young coach or, you know, growing up, I'd be like, I wasn't really bothered. I didn't really want to know. I was told to ask questions, so I wanted to ask questions so I could tell them what I thought. Mm. You know? I think if, if you unpick the onion a little bit more, and I'm not a interviewer or never done a podcast... One of the skills you've got to have is the ability to listen. So you can be curious, and people at the elite level of anything are generally very curious people. And it's certainly a trait of, in my observations of rugby coaches and coaches in general, that they're curious about things and, and they seek to understand but there's a real art in listening listening to understand versus listening to justify your your argument um, so I suspect a good interviewer is a very good listener who can be curious enough to direct those questions and explore person's been interviewed but anyway we'll yeah. go back to the RDO level we'll come yeah. we'll go back to that so at this stage I've I was an RDO for Canterbury Rugby for 12 years probably took me three years to get comfortable in the job and it can have a bit of a Groundhog Day effect uh, cycle it every year so at the end of the three years I knew myself well enough to understand I needed to find something that triggered my curiosity. So I ended up getting into decision making and, and how, how to make rugby players better decision making and fortunately had a lot of very good coaches involved in Canterbury Rugby. Richard Smith, Craig Philpott, whole raft of them that went on to do things in, in rugby who were also like Craig was the deputy principal of Christchurch Boys High RJ Richard Smith who's now an independent um, contractor in his own right around leadership environments he was working for high performance sport at the time so some really interesting people to be associated with. So I got involved in decision-making, created a program, an eight-week program of decision-making. A gentleman came in and did his master's thesis from Canterbury University on, a, on us, and we went down that 
rabbit warren and um, we came across things like saccadic eye vision, um, blind spots and what pressure did and etc etc uh, and to be fair we'd only just scratched the surface so and how s skill levels affected decision making and peripheral vision and cue recognition whole whole lot of things and from that program got involved with Robbie Deans who was head coach of the Crusaders at that stage and um, he invited me along and I just did a little bit of background skill work uh, with the wider training group so that was two years of that and then f five years with Toddy uh, when he came in as a head coach and again supporting the wider training group and the reason I got him was able to be involved there is they had triangular coaching setups and generally they had two coaches and two of them were forwards and the backs coach was left on his own so I'd tag along and learn off Robbie and then I was associated with Daryl Gibson and spent five years in there. Um, learned a lot about myself in that. Um, probably only operated it at 40 to 50% of my potential capability because I was um, intimidated by the environment, self, and that was on myself. Um, probably didn't offer as much as I could have and that was all just part of the learning journey mm. um, but I was reasonably okay at building relationships with the younger players and helping them and advising them and conversations etc um, did a little bit of review stuff with Robbie and a little bit of opposition analysis for one year with Toddy and then like every coach you get moved on because Toddy wanted a change of people in the environment for whatever reason um, and that was an experience in itself um, you have a little bit of anger a little bit of pissed off but you got to get over yourself because that's coaching and they brought uh, Tabai Matson and um, Aaron Major in. Uh, Gibbo went on to do the Waratahs and won a championship there. I went back to being an RDO. I was never employed by Crusaders or anything like that, but had a massive learning curve in there. And fortunate enough to get exposed to the professional game um, how the, these coaches coached. Um, Robbie's great strength was talent ID and developing a game plan. Um, was able to watch Toddy come in as a real young coach and grow himself as a coach. 
um, and with Dave Hewitt and Gibbo as well. And they all they were all quite different. They had different traits and, and different needs and due to their probably youth of coaching, they didn't always connect. And that was just the learning journey they were on. Nobody was right, nobody was wrong. It was just a journey. And um, all those people have gone on to be very good coaches and still very good coaches in their own right. After we finished there, Crusaders put me up and they got a contract to deliver a rugby program in Brazil. And I went up into there as part of that and lived up there for 18 months. Um, and Brazil was an opportunity to take everything you'd learnt and have a crack with it. And the first thing I learnt is Brazil's not the Crusaders. And you can't take everything out of the Crusaders and put it in Brazil. But you did have a... What the Crusaders had allowed me was have a wide breadth of experiences and observations so you could pick out the right possible solution and put it in place. And we... When we were up there, they also... were really setting up for the Olympics, the sevens program. We had a 15 side. And uh, rugby had been there for a hundred and something years. The guy who took rugby and also took soccer. And the Brazilians played rugby, loved the game, but they got injured too much and they couldn't go to work, so they took up soccer. And rugby died off. Hence, they're pretty good, rugby, pretty good soccer players now. But anyway... Went in there, lost my first test match in charge of Brazil. Well, stopped counting at 100 plus points. Played the Argentinian under 20s with a few ring ins as they got ready for their World Cup. Uh, so that was pretty humbling. Walked out of there and realised rugby's not what these boys need. We need to get the environment and culture right. A uh, couple of things we did, or I did, I got rid of the dickheads. The, the talented rugby players were generally me, myself and I people, and they wanted to play sevens at the Olympics anyway. So I let them go to the Olympics program. And we kept all the we, me, us people that were OK rugby players. But the idea was to form the, create the environment from which we could launch off. Long story short, 18 months later, 14 months later, we'd gone from losing by 100 points to we won our first game against Chile in 45 years. We lost by three points to Uruguay. And after I came home, they beat the USA in the what you might call was a bit of an ambush in Chile, but they still won. And the key learning around that, and it's probably driven me ever since, is the environment. You, know, you get the environment right, and generally the rest will feed off that. And we got the environment right, because they weren't the most talented group of individuals.
but they're a pretty good team. Hmm. And two plus two didn't equal four with that group. It equaled 5.2. And they understood it, and they cared about each other, and they cared about the country, the flag, the team, and they were a great bunch of guys to have. And, you know, the training environment was in a big industrial area and you had to go through a gate from a public car, a big industrial area car park. You had to go through this gate to get to the training compound. So we painted a yellow line on the gate and that was to indicate whatever's gone on before now, leaving the car park. When you cross this line, it's about you, yourself, your teammates and us. And then as they walked into the building, uh, in Portuguese there was another yellow line, go back to the car and leave it, last chance. <laughs> and they got it. And uh, we built a pretty good team that probably achieved greater things than they thought. Um, one of the games we played on our journey to winning our first match was we played Portugal. And we lost by a horrendous score. We're about, we've been gone for about eight months at this stage. And um, we came to the debrief, they put us in a hotel and we're in a debrief. And I said, right, yeah, we'll start the debrief put the video clip on and it was a clip of them singing the national anthem now oh yeah then it stopped and I said that's it there's no other learnings in that game that's the only clip that we can enjoy and they man I got some looks but I said however we're going to now decide on some things that'll set us up for the next generation and I talked about values behaviours, living above the line, below the line. You're going to set this up for the next generation. So let's go. And it took us about a week. And we found the Tupi warrior, which was a native of South America, which was a fierce warrior tribe. So, yeah, we just built it. That set us up. And they had to learn the game of rugby. We had to have something going for us and one of the questions we put to them was what can you be the best in the world at pick something in your game and um, they pondered it for quite a while and the answer we came up with was let's be the best in the world at getting off the ground which was the first part of getting back in the game. First part of getting back in the system. So if we can get off the ground opposite, quicker than your opposite, we can give ourselves a chance. Okay. What's that look like in the game? What's that look like in training? What's that look like in our strength and conditioning? Uh, what's that look like in our drills and skills? Who's prepared to pay the price? What does suffering look like? Because you've got to suffer now to get the benefits later. 
And some of those boys went through some pain. But the day we won the test match, we were actually playing in a stadium in Brazil and it was on TV. They didn't remember the pain and suffering then. Hmm. So, and then after that, that, so that's sort of a bit of a verbal about Brazil. Um, and then came home from that, the money dried up, the funding was pulled, Brazil was going through a downturn in the economy. Came home, Canterbury Rugby didn't have a position, so I ended up here at Burnside Rugby Club, which was the first time I'd ever been in a rugby club, to be fair, because I was 17 when I joined the army. Went overseas to mining, come back, worked for Canterbury Rugby. I'd never actually been part of a rugby club, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been another learning curve. Um, can't complain whatsoever. Yeah, there's <clears throat> a million and one different threads there. I'd like to know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, save, we'll save them for the next time. But uh, one question, one kind of last question for this time, just to ask you, would be, what would you say to your younger self who is in that Crusaders environment when you said that, you know, you felt you only got 40 or 50 percent out of you because I think it's so common. I've been there in different times as a player, as just different times in my life. And I, I think we all have, you know, but what would you say to, to yourself back then? Mm, good question. What would I say to myself? I'd learn to understand vulnerability is not weakness, it's actually a strength. You don't have to know all the answers. Um, yeah, and relax. I think the big thing I'd say to myself is don't worry about being liked and people's respect. And I probably tried to be liked. And because I didn't understand vulnerability and all those other things that go with that, I think it would be fair to say over time I lost their respect or never never quite had the respect. They probably liked me as a person, but the respect as a rugby coach. It's probably what I, how I'd answer that question. In their respect, trust yourself, understand vulnerability as a strength, not a weakness. Yeah, so it's your, you would approach it as, I want to be the best rugby coach here today or this season versus what can I do for them to like me? And then if you're giving it your all as rugby coach, which we said is a, is a very a wide different thing, not, you know, like you, a rugby coach is a very broad thing, that when you're approaching from that lens that to do it that way versus thinking, how, what can I do here for them to like me? Do you get I, me? Is I that? remember one day we'd um, videoed all the boys in their run-catch pastures. Daryl was taking um, 
an activity and we had a laptop and a TV in the back of a vehicle and Leon McDonald came over. I said, here's your video clip, Leon. Um, what have you been working on with your run, catch, pass and the All Blacks? And he was the last guy to come over. And he says, oh, Smithy and that have got this, this and this. I said, well, is that a strength or a weakness you're working on? He says, oh, it's a strength. Okay, let's enhance their strength. And that was it. He left and I went, it took you all this time to get that conversation right. You fool. Because before that I was saying, telling them what I'd seen. What do you think? Where in actual fact I'd asked, I didn't pass judgment. I'd ask Leon, what are you working on? What are you seeing? What's your mm -hmm. strength? How are we going to do it? Okay, I'll support you in that. Cheers for listening in today. Would you do me a favor now and send the podcast on to some friends or into your WhatsApp group? That takes less than 30 seconds, but I would hugely appreciate it because that's how the podcast grows and how more people get value from it. If you're an ambitious player, serious about getting to your next level and would like to feel more confident, enthusiastic and certain of success, get in touch through my website offfieldrugby.com and we'll sort a time to chat over Zoom. Everyone understands the importance of getting help with your physical development through an SNC coach and the best players in the world understand the importance of getting help with your mental development through a mental skills coach. So don't be worrying about your future. Don't be hoping that you're doing the right stuff and hoping that things will work out. Get in touch. We'll work together monthly and you will love how much better you feel. You'll love how certain you'll feel about where you're going, about your future and how much more confidence you will have in yourself. Or if you're a coach and you would like to give your team an edge out there in the field, then get in touch through the website as well. And we can chat about how we can help your team through a Zoom session. You know, it's funny, I've been there myself as a coach. You spend ages working on a play or a call that they mightn't even do, or it doesn't come off. So essentially that's all time wasted. But you do one mental skills session with your team and they learn tools and strategies to deal with nerves, have more confidence and self-belief and instantly their performances can go up 10, 20, 30% each. You add all those percentages across a whole squad and it's literally a complete game changer for your team. And your players will be so thankful to you and you look great. So yeah, if you're a coach, get in touch via offfieldrugby.com and you and I can have a chat over the phone to suss where your team is at and what they kind of need. I'll link all my socials below, at offfieldrugby for Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Brian Moylet for LinkedIn. Add me there so we can stay in touch. And hey, thanks again for spending some time with me today. I hope you're keeping well. Have a good one. Cheers.